there and welcome back to Unscripted and Unapologetic. On today's episode that all, hopefully, 10 people, we're in the double digits now, uh, will check out, is um, I'm already not liking the way this is going. Take two. Take two. Hey, hey and welcome back to Unapologetic. <laughs> Gonna get it on the third try. Just watch. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. Hit the subscribe. In the meantime, I'm gonna try take three. We're gonna try it right now. Just a little rust. Hey, welcome back to Unscripted and Unapologetic on this Sunday, February 13th, 2022. On today's episode, um, I'm kind of continuing to delve into my past a little bit. And um, this is an interesting and fun thing to do uh, for all those tens of listeners out there, if I'm lucky at this point, you know that I've actually put uh, a lot of personal information out there, which is not typical for me. That's not something I like to do, but I've made the decision that uh, this is important and everybody's story is important. And so um, I decided to look more into mine. In 2020, October 9th, 2020, after I got laid off, I'd been in contact uh, through LinkedIn, which I no longer even subscribe to, but I'd been in contact with my first grade teacher and then one other year before or after. Linda can clarify when she comes on, but don't forget um, if you've seen any of my other stuff on the matter, I was vaccine injured at about three years old from the DTP vaccine. There was a wave of vaccination injuries in the 80s, which then prompted uh, the legislation in 1986 which um, took away an individual's right to really seek any kind of actual recourse if they were injured, maimed, or even killed. In my case, I was brain damaged and um, I needed specialty care. And that went in the form of uh, speech therapy to cutting edge sort of quirky things uh, as far as the establishment was concerned at the time. Um, called vision therapy. Linda can speak uh, to what that experience was like as my teacher because she was one of the few people that could reach me intuitively. She really understood and knew me. Um, and more than that, Linda's an individual who uh, looks past what they were wanting to do, um, which was, you know, put me on meds and put me in an institution for a lifetime. That's what they were telling my mom, that if you don't do this, it's going to get that much worse. And she could see I'll let her elaborate, but and I'm I'm not the only student because she's a, a gifted human being this way. But she could see um, what so many people, uh, other people couldn't, uh, evidently couldn't see. Um, so during this time, I was heavily medicated and um, under the care of psychiatrists uh, and under the auspices auspices of the. Um, of the health establishment, which kind of fused with my public schooling at the time before I left public school for a while. Um, and they were, the, the approach was, you know, inpatient hospitalization, heavy medication. Um, and it took a while, I think, before the realization was very clear for my parents, try, just trying to navigate all that. And it took a while because unlike a lot of parents, they were crusaders, especially my mom. My dad was right behind her, but my mom, my dad would be the first to say was the go-getter, um, made her realize, especially when I took a stand on meds, but she had already known this, otherwise she would have fought me on it uh, at 
11-ish years old, I said I wasn't going to take meds anymore. My mom realized it was people uh, and the right people that would, you know, right the ship and, and get me back on course, um, if anything was going to do that at all. And techniques, um, teaching my brain how to do things in different ways. And so that's kind of what we're going to talk about a little bit today, what the journey was like for me. Um, it's a serious topic. I take it very seriously. Uh, really, because when you look at what is going on now, of course, with the vaccine mandates and all that, but it's a much bigger picture than that about where we're headed, um, has everything to do about where we've been, and the schedule of uh, vaccinations that are given to our kids. Um, it just, uh, it's staggering. It really is. I'm no expert uh, health-wise, but it seems like a lot. Um, anyway, all of these things are connected. All the stories, all, all every individual's experience. Um, and so when we reconnected, I was over the moon that, um, and I had my intuition kind of told me that Linda DeFrancisco um, is probably gonna think in similar terms um, as far as I did. And not only were we in lockstep, pretty close to in lockstep on that issue, um, or not only were we close, but we were in lockstep, or at least I feel like we, we were and are. And anyway, uh, this is going to be a pretty just laid back conversation. Um, we're going to take it on a journey and see where it goes. And, um, and so, yeah, enjoy and subscribe and whatnot, all that stuff. Yeah. Welcome, Linda D. Francesco. First, I want to uh, clarify, like, <laughs> I know it was first grade, but did I have you as my teacher the year for a year before that as well, or after, or was it just no. the one? It was first grade. Yeah. Gosh, says a lot. If you think about it, about how much of a force you were in my life, that first grade and all these years later, like, you know, I, I remember you as an integral piece of, um, of my life during that very challenging time. It may have been first and second, Sean. It's now now you have me questioning. It definitely wasn't. It definitely wasn't kindergarten because gotcha. you were in kindergarten at, at another school, if I recall. Yeah, project something. Um... Well, Project Pride was preschool, but then oh, wow. I, thought, I then I and I could be mistaken. Nineteen eighty-seven was a long time ago. Yes, That's the year I. That was the first year I had you. Now perhaps I had you for two. Um, which I, I think is true because I think so too. Yeah. I was only there for three years in the third year I had um, kindergarten and, and preschool. So gotcha. okay, yeah, so you probably had me for the two. Um, and then those those years that um, I'm trying to get a recollection of, you know, I've had, of course, many conversations with my mom, uh, many, but I've been trying to branch out since I got laid off in 2020 to kind of, really take like a look at, um, and of course it has everything to do with, not everything, but a lot to do with what's going on now with the vaccine mandates and all this stuff. It's a very personal thing to me. Um, and yes, I spend a lot of time taking a look from 30,000 feet as to like where we're going with all of this, but it's very hard not for me to take this particular piece of it personally. Um, that was also the decade in the 80s where, you know, um, you had a wave of injuries and then subsequent legislation in 1986, which uh, created the vaccine 
it created a, a mechanism for where people could go for arbitration, but the, the pharmaceutical companies were no longer liable in the way that they're, they're, they can be held to account for any other drug that they make, in, as far as I know, I could be wrong. So anyway, I get the DTP and I have um, a very severe reaction as a toddler. According to my parents and uh, they're the source, right? You know, I was meeting and exceeding all milestones, meeting and exceeding all milestones. I don't know how, how many milestones you have when you're a toddler, but apparently I was exceeding them and it was very outgoing. And, um, and after this, I, I had to start fresh um, within 12 hours of getting the vaccine. I was lethargic and feverish. Um, and then by that following morning, when she was loading me, my mom into the car to take me to the emergency room, I, I guess I couldn't hold my head up. And so from there was kind of a long journey. I mean, you got to know me first two and a half years later when I was six years old. During that time, I was hospitalized for the first time. Um, what I want to kind of talk about is just casually a lot of the stuff we have talked about. I do want to add before I go any further that um, I mentioned this in the introduction, but we had reconnected on LinkedIn and, you know, just back and forth, but what a um, overwhelming joy it was like in terms of like feeding my soul and giving and uplifting me when it turned out that like which I kind of had suspected but to hear you say all of the stuff I was like you know um you know how you felt about uh you know vac the vaccines in general um our view of the system and some of the errors in it um and in just stuff you know from the big down to the granular stuff uh in in regards to the system and big pharma and uh, its influence in um, not just my life, but like the lives of students, the lives of all of us. So um, anyway, uh, but then my, you know, you were an advocate for me, a huge advocate, um, you just by understanding me. Um, uh, and you could speak to with a little more clarity and, and you're right it's been a long time but we've talked um, about some of the things that you were learning about as a teacher as a, as a new teacher um, like brand new right um, brand new. so I give you I must have given you a run for your, right out of college uh, <laughs> uh, wow Sorry about that. <laughs> I wasn't as young. I, I had some experience. Um, right. Remember, I was an older student. I didn't go to Which college. Which is good. Yeah. I had my family. So I think when I started uh, teaching you, I was, I'll do quick math, I was 35 years old. So I, okay. I had that helps. raising children, you know, um, all kids have issues of some kind. So I right. was used to, you know, um, some of that piece. So it wasn't like I was a 22 year old fresh out of college, but I was still a brand new teacher. Right. But, but I would say that life experience explains a lot. So um, just so that people know from the intro, a few things that I talked about that I remember as far as interventions, these are the big ones um, and they're broadly speaking, but um, and not necessarily in any particular order, speech therapy, obviously um, psychiatry, um, was an outside component. Um, I don't know if I was required to see a school psychologist, although I know that one was overseeing, had, you know, knew about my case. Uh, 
vision therapy, which I want to talk with you about, just the changes that you saw, um, and meds and hospitalization, you know, like as far as those being interventions. And then we, I reached a point where um, I think as a family, we, we reached a point, you and I discussed this just kind of personally chatting recently, where I said no to meds. And um, looking back in hindsight, my mother said, you know, I realized that, you know, people and techniques were the solution, not drugs. And you know what I mean? Not, not medications. And, um, and by the way, it should be stated that my mom, you know, firmly believes in, in the usefulness of um, psychiatric uh, care uh, whenever is appropriate, but that's just, um, that's the realization that we came to. And I include you in that. You know what I mean? I mean, you were a key player all the way to, uh, you know, the Chorneys at the Grove School, which is where um, I really was able to, I look at you as having laid the groundwork. And then I fast forward to 1995 when I go to the Grove School and they really saved me. And that's a discussion for another time, but, um, and of course a lot in between. But let's kind of start with um, your new teacher. What did you learn about me and my issues when, you know, like you had, I don't remember how many kids were in the class. Uh, there were six. There were six there were of us? Six. All boys. Okay. Um, and we each had special education needs, right? Okay. You did. Um, there was one student uh, who was on the autism spectrum. And... There were, say, the other boys. It, it was it wasn't really learning problems. It had it was more emotional, behavioral that that sort of um, issue, just requiring more structure, um, less rigidity. <laughs> I think that's that's probably the part that maybe maybe worked well for you was. I I always provided structure, but I. I was never rigid. I always tried to meet my students where they were and accept them for who they were and take it from there. Right. Um, rather than just saying, okay, well, you should be here because you're this age and you're this, you know, and these are my expectations. I, I like to get to know a student, try to understand what was causing their, their difficulties, their challenges and how, how I could make that make that better. Um, for example, I had a student come to me mid-year and the teacher jokingly said, don't bother giving him a desk because he won't sit down. So I didn't give him a desk. He can't sit. Why, right. why won't yeah, exactly. Ready? So it, it was that sort of thing. And um, just really trying to observe. I was a, a real observer. I used to like to videotape and then watch them at home mm -hmm. and what I was missing when I was in the midst of it. And right. I learned a lot from that. It started out where I would, I would, someone would videotape like the speech therapist right. so that we can look at it and, and determine how to help that particular student. Yeah. And what I learned was how to change what I was doing equally as well. Because um, when you're in the moment, it, it's really kind of hard to. to Absolutely, do that. yeah. In a moment with students, even six of students, uh, with such a wide range of needs, uh, you know, like you, you can be tending, I, I'm just imagining in some of my work with youth, um, you know, 
you remove yourself from the eye of the storm and kind of debrief and do an inventory and you're like, oh, this is the approach I could have taken. Or I wonder what was actually going on there. Um, did you get like kind of a, a breakdown of what each one of the students was dealing with, um, including me, obviously, prior had, to starting? I had collaboration with the teachers that, um, that you were with before, but in particular, um, the, the way I came to, to your school system was I did my student teaching in your preschool class in Project Pride. And I became, and, and Sally Brockett was the teacher. So um, I apologize, I lost my train. So um, Sally was, was an excellent teacher. She was extremely committed to her students. Um, and she was very thorough in sharing information. And do you recall when I shared with you about the video of you that related to the whole vision therapy? Yes, yeah, and I, that? yeah. Um, okay, so um, one of the things that Sally had showed me was a, a video of you in the block center. She was, she was, um, having some consultation from a behavioral optometrist, Dr. Padula in Guilford. Mm -hmm. yep. And I wasn't there at the time, so I can't speak to the, the whole scenario, but there was a group of, of kids, preschoolers, uh, playing in the block area. And you came into the area like, like there was wind at your back. You just sort of blew in and blew around and, you know, as a result, it wrecked everybody's building and the other kids were upset. And you, you seemed to be totally clueless about what had happened. Right. And, and so then Dr. Padula came in and he put a pair of empty frames on you, just eyeglass with, with eyeglass frames with dark rims, mm. no prescription in them, but sort of a, to frame, give you a framing, if you right. will. Interesting. And you immediately stopped and looked around and was like, oh my, what happened here? <laughs> it's like you went from a lack of awareness to full awareness just by putting on this lens. And if, I mean, this, these frames, and if I hadn't seen it myself, I, I'm not sure I'd have believed it. That's um, fascinating. It, it really was, it was, and, and, and it was so clear that you really didn't see all that was going around. It wasn't intentional. I mean, right. someone else could have looked at that and said, well, look at that kid just going in and, you know, wrecking everybody's uh, fun here. Like that right. wasn't very nice. And that wasn't what you were doing. You just entered the scene. Yeah, I was were, oblivious. Yeah, you were, you were oblivious. It was so clear. Mm. Um, and, and so I went on to learn that Dr. Padula had suspected that you had what was called Streff syndrome. And Streff syndrome was named after John Streff, the behavioral optometrist who coined the term. And it, the other name for it was it used to be called the non-malingering syndrome because it, many doctors and educators and parents thought that kids who had this syndrome were, were faking it because sometimes they would act this way and sometimes they wouldn't. And um, so anyways, uh, 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 the, uh, the 
treatment for this is vision therapy. And it, it really just helps the person with stress syndrome to organize their visual system because their accommodative system just doesn't work properly. Things go in and out of focus um, without a lot of control. Right. And I can't speak to it scientifically. I've been away from, from this work for, for far too long to, to speak with any more detail. But it was pretty clear to me. And I, I saw when you came to my program, I saw some signs of this. And I think I shared with you the time in the bathroom. Do you recall that story? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and share it. File on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, if if listeners can visualize some of those old fashioned bathroom tiles with the, the black and white geometric shape that if you stare at it long enough, it can do funny things. Um, and one of the uh, paras, the paraprofessional stuff started to happen and with an accommodative problem, I could see where things would start moving and swirling and, and be really weird. And so I just, you know, supported you and and got you out of there and talked you off talked you off the cliff and you know helped you to realize that it was it was just tricks that your eyes were playing on you and, and you were fine but that sort of cemented the feeling for me and I talked to your mom a lot about how I thought a big part of your problem was was visual yeah yeah, they, I took a, a screenshot. I, I don't know that I, I could find it. I want to see if I can get his website. It was just, it was, it was really, I mean, let's say groundbreaking stuff. But um, my mom said that when she started to take me there, it like, like the, our insurance wouldn't pay for it because um, it, was, it was not a Padula Institute of Vision. It was not something that people um, were doing. So let's see if I can share. It my was a real problem back then. And over the years, vision therapy has been covered, not covered. I remember when my kids are in vision therapy uh, for the first few years with my older kids, I, I paid out of pocket. And then um, later on, we started to get some coverage, but that was a problem for, for a lot of people. You know, uh, real quick here, I don't know if you can see this, but here's his website right here. And I was just going through it because, you know, like I said, I was writing a blog post on on some of the stuff um, for children, uh, visual processing disorders in children, uh, and then learning difficulties and vision problems. So like, I, I would just be interested, you know, I'm going to look into some of this more later and maybe attach it to this, but um, it's it's so it's just so absolutely interesting to me uh, that I I can remember I had a lot going on in my brain at the time. Of course, they had me on medications. I don't remember like the exact ones. Um, all I know is that they tried so many different things. But I can I do have this vivid memory of being given the first time we went to his office. I suppose maybe certainly in the intro visits. Uh, my mom might even still have these. She just doesn't remember if it was like during intake or at what point, but I was given a picture from a coloring book of like a house and a yard and a tree, simple stuff to color in. And um, I 
beforehand in the beginning was all over. And I remember sitting in the waiting room at the end, it was, you know, probably 7 p.m. on a cold winter night and him giving another, the same picture that I had drawn in and I had drawn, colored it in virtually perfectly. And my mom was just, I remember, I don't remember what she said. I just remember her being like uh, blown away kind of by the, by the difference. I mean, I wonder how much of that was like the beginning of like a turnaround for me. I mean, what, I, I, I don't know if you can recall, but at what point during the year did, um, so it started with the empty frames and then I eventually got started vision therapy, but I got glasses too, which by the way, I'm trying to, my mom's trying to find a picture of those big old glasses because boy, were they not cool to wear it. I feel kind of cheated because now like it's popular amongst uh, kids to wear glasses. Like sometimes they buy them like, and there's not even, there's just, yeah, there's, it's not like prescription or anything. They just buy them because they look cool. Although I don't even think these glasses that I had to wear would, would be cool today. People, it's hard for me to describe what these clunkers were like to wear, but, but do you remember at what point, like, you know, I was, started to wear glasses and uh, not being very eloquent here, which is fine. But um, essentially, do you remember any, do you remember feeling like there was any transform transformation taking place because of that? Yes. Piece? And, you know, between the lenses and the vision therapy, the lenses, the lenses, especially with stress syndrome are, are and, and for various other things, they're just a very, very low plus lens. They don't affect acuity. They just help get the world off your face in a way, just sort of give some space and organization. It relaxes the accommodation system. Um, so it, it does a lot of things with this very, very uh, minimal amount of plus lens. But, when you put medication into the mix, I think pretty much all psychiatric drugs affect the accommodative system. And I felt that that was interfering. But right. as a teacher, that's not appropriate for me. I right. mean, your, mom, yeah. your mom and I talked every day, sometimes two and three times a day. I mean, I have no doubt knowing times, my mom. Your, your, your mom put you on the bus and called me. And then at the end of the day, I put you on the bus and called her. So this is what the day was like. This is who, you know, who's coming home. This is who's coming home to school or, you know, these kind of things. These are things you might need to process. Right. Um, but I always, at least the, to the best of my ability, the, my recall is I tried to balance my strong feeling that the lenses and the vision therapy were critical with keeping my role as an educator, right. which was not, not to, and, and as I told you in the past, um, particularly our, the school psychologist was really, really, really believing that you needed, you know, medication and psychiatric help early on, or goodness, later on, it was just going to be too late. Right. And I just couldn't disagree with her more. And I'm not a psychologist. I'm not right. a psychologist, but just. I Sometimes don't know. we just intuitively know. And I'm glad that you 
intuitively knew certain things that we'll talk about, you know, my uh, kind of almost daydreaming, I don't know what else to call it, like uh, pretending things were there with like the incident where I was like, there's bombs everywhere or whatever. But I, I just want to say real quick that as, you know, someone who grew up and then started working with youth, um, yes, you have your, what they call the scope of practice, the scope of authority that you need to stay within. And of course, there's reasons for that. But on the other hand, um, I think, no, I, I'm going to say I know after 16 years of working uh, in treatment centers and in community programs and seeing it from a 360 point of view that, that a lot of compartmentalization happens. Um, people with letters after their name, um, we rely heavily on experts and a lot of, don't get me wrong, a lot of the knowledge is of inestimable valuable value. Um, and there's no doubt that for a lot of people, it's been modern medicine has been nothing but a marvel. But it also, I, I mean, I'll, I have, I have a, a, a memory of being working at the shelter as a team manager. And somebody from the state came, lovely woman, won't say her name, obviously, but she was um, our, our licensing rep. And uh, we had a lot of them, so I won't say the year. To protect her, um, she was pretty well versed at her job. She had just moved from one department to another, um, this one being easier. And one of the things was to flip through the med book and make sure that everything was being done accurately. And uh, I don't remember the number, but there was a certain number of clients that weren't on meds. And as we closed to the book, she says, uh, looking good. Uh, and I said, yeah, uh, about so-and-so amount of kids are on meds. She's like, well, the others will be soon. You know, like the, I, she was like, ha ha joking, but not like she would be the one to do that. But I think that what she was, what you could read from that is that in the stay in the system long enough. And that's what happens, you know, um, that, that they, that they end up on some kind of meds. And with very, with almost no exception, um, I've, I've found that to be true. I many times advocated for youth that, um, because there's another component when you have the letters after your name, even if you are just a rock star, and believe me, I've worked with most of the clinicians that are just rock stars and trying to do it, did the best that they can. Um, and, but fortunately, many of them would recognize that the teacher or the direct care staff or the manager and the manager staff, you know, um, we're spending hours and hours more time through no fault of the counselor, psychologist or psychiatrist, it's through no fault of their own, but one hour a week versus, you know, mm -hmm. many, many more. <laughs> and that, yeah. that kind of um, down to the granular level, like that bonding, the rapport building, the, the getting through crises, uh, all kinds of things, you have a take on it that's, that's can't be ignored and um and so I'm, I'm i'm glad that like you know whenever you had observations that were practical and germane and like uh also you know you used your knowledge of me as you learned about me to to advocate and to even in the conversations i can promise you i know this for a fact that you that you had with my mom those my mom would take bits of information and try to synthesize them as best as she could to, to forge a path forward for like what we were going to do because there was, you know, more and more information and more and more pressure and more, you know, and she's got the rest of the family. 
Mm-hmm. So like, you know, that, that contact with you definitely helped guide her and, and discussions that we've had, you know, she's like, I really look at every, every piece, every person that I communicated with that, that much is kind of building the road toward some of the, the decisions in the later years, um, such as Grove and things like that, that would really, I believe, launch me into adulthood um i they were based on what they were telling her there would be no way that i was going to be where i am i mean she was being told that i would be in an institution i can't imagine that you know i don't know what they thought if they thought i was going to wind up profoundly autistic i i i mean if you're my mom could certainly speak to it but if your memory serves right maybe you could as well i mean I know I alarmed sometimes some of them, like with the bomb story. Um, maybe you yeah. could speak to that, but I don't know what yeah. they were thinking, but it wasn't good. I, I don't know, you know, I mean, I when I think back to, and, and I, I told you when we re- reconnected, which by the way, I'm just so thrilled that this sure. we have reconnected because as I told you, you are someone I never forgot thinking about. And for, I thought about you all these years and wondered, just wondered, how you were, you know, how did things go for you? But what I remember is you were very, very bright. You had no problem learning, mm-hmm. and it, which, given your vaccine injury and where you were, and then where that took you, and then how you came out of it is just remarkable. Um, kudos to you and to your mom for, for yeah. that recovery and all everyone else who participated in that. But you were very bright, but you were very anxious. You were, mm-hmm. you were, at least that was my, yeah. that, that, oh, was my, that you were anxious and you were, um, you lacked the confidence to try things. But with, I mean, like Shauna, I was a new teacher. Like I said, I didn't have like this huge bag of tricks. Um, you responded really well. I mean, I, I guess I didn't, I guess maybe I saw more of the positive than, than the negative. Um, and I, I probably, and I still don't, and, and I have a lot more experience um, as, a, as a teacher and um, even in a lot of ways, because so much of my teaching was with, with kids and young adults with mental health issues that, although that's, I'm not a mental health expert, I have a lot of experience. And I still look back at at that six-year-old kid and I don't see what the school psychologist saw and feared and what the psychiatrist saw. Um, I just didn't. I saw an anxious kid who needed a lot of support, a lot of encouragement. And I, 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 I really thought you were just going to grow up to be this brilliant, which you have. Um, oh, well, thank I, you. I didn't, I, I don't know, Sean, I, I didn't see it. I don't even know how to explain you, that. You, you looked, that. You, you looked beyond it in some, and I, and it's one of those, um, use one of my favorite words here. It's ineffable. Like, uh, I, you can't, you can't describe it. Um, you know, for those people that are in the helping field, you know, maybe you can kind of understand what we're trying to say but you know i met, met many of the youth that i worked with in the past that you know upon meeting them and doing the intake in my office for my part you know and getting them into the dorm or whatever i could kind of after 
this took me a few years, but like you learn to see, you hear all these things before they get there about what kind of person they are. And then you, you, you meet them for me. I mean, these were adolescents, of course, but you see automatically like a, a different outcome that's better. I, I don't know how else to describe. And then it ends up panning out that way. And thank goodness, you know, I was very fortunate to work at a place that was special and had special people that um, like, you know, the current director who is a dear friend of mine who, 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 who conduct themselves that way. She's a marvelous clinician. And um, we worked together to bridge the, the gap between programs and clinical staff so that there would be this marriage of those two from the, the people who knew the, the patients, the clients, and the people that had the clinical training and all of us together made this master team. You know, that's the way, that's the way that uh, it should be. But I think that some of my behaviors um, from, this is strictly from what I'm told. I mean, I, I have a vague memory of the morning that I said there were bombs planted all over campus and that freaked people out. But I, a memory that I don't recall that my, that was probably around this time that my mom laughs about now in hindsight a lot, like she'll have a real good laugh, but she's like, at the time it was just an exhausting ordeal. Um, it was like 7 p.m. And don't forget, she would pick me up, then she would have all these things to do with me, like, you know, take them to vision therapy, take them to um, counseling, and then take them to the psychiatrist for med check-in. So the psychiatrist was last on the list. Uh, I remember the man, his name was Dr. Konigsberg. I have fond, like, in terms of memories about what kind of person he was, I remember him to be, because, you know, sometimes you just remember the way you feel. I feel like I was very respected and taken care of, but evidently after our session or check-in, one night he left me in his office to go chat with my mom in the waiting room. And I dialed 911 <laughs> and told them and told them that I was being held against my will. So 911 calls back and the receptionist answers. And no one else in the building, everyone else has left, of course, because it's late. I was the last patient on a skid. And uh the receptionist says to the doctor, I think you should take this. This is uh, this is New Haven police. And apparently your patient feels he's being held against his will. And so, uh, and you know, I mean, I, I could have walked out at any point. And my mom's like, you know, then we walk in there and you're looking at us like, you know, what what's the problem, you know? And I was more concerned about whether or not maybe we could go to McDonald's after than the fact that I had just done that. So I was oblivious. I mean, like, I guess little kids might do that stuff, but I think I in the in the early stages um, when I was first injured, my behavior was so sometimes shocking to people. Like I, I apparently broke a dish when I was five and a half at the dining room table and and told my family I was going to slip my wrist with them, um, and it was it was very difficult for them to contend with because two years earlier, I was like, you know, if the family would have like a lot of guests, I was the social one. And um, walking around and hugging people's legs, you know, and like, and, and being, you know, a, a chatty cat, even though probably, you know, as a little kid, it was a lot of gibberish coming out of there. But my mom's like that, that, that shift 
to this just you you know I was you know bubbly and happy all the time and really outgoing to going through a period of time where I was nonverbal and um, sort of have had problems with motor skills um, then to kind of very shocking statements and behaviors and gestures or uh, things like that I, and I think that that's when it carried over into the school system. I mean, I have memories of only one incident really, which is that one. Uh, but apparently there were a few that really people didn't know what to, how, how to deal with me. Um, my mom, sorry, and then I'll let you talk. My mom talks about an incident where, um, and I don't know if this is before you or after you, but um, there was a rice table and I liked to play with the rice. And, and there was a, a teacher that essentially was a sub or something and let me play at the rice table all day long. Like just like watching it sift through my hands um, mm -hmm. because that was the only way that she could control me. And I do remember this teacher telling me to um, shut up. It took her a while to get there, but she came over to my desk and she was emotional almost. Cause I was, I don't know I was if I was being inconsolable, I couldn't sit in my seat for the life of me. Um, but, you know, if it was be quiet first. And then I remember her taking the rim of the desk and shaking a little bit and being, and her face was red and her saying, shut up. And uh, mom had a conversation with her about that because of course, I, I, I don't remember what happened next, but apparently I had a meltdown that led to the office. And then my mom was like, oh, not okay. But um, a lot of behaviors like that, that, I think um, it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, my mom was able to take some of that and, and go to the school system. And the school system was happy to oblige at the time and say, they said, well, we can't manage him. And so my mom's like, well, under this, apparently there, you know, the law says that if they can't and they won't, that they have to pay for the services that will. And that's how she got me a lot of the innovative services that she was able to get me. And I, you know, I think, although I'd have to confirm this, you know, at some point, pick, you know, picked up the tab for um, stuff that we were paying out of pocket for, like division therapy, that we could in no way, I mean, apparently it was just great, it was costing them so much, but um, do you, do you remember that, that story about the, me and the, I, I freaked out the school psych, I freaked out someone with telling them that I had planted bombs, or that I was going to do something with an axe, or yeah, about shock value stuff. That's like a really good example. So of of how we looked at things differently. So you came to school one morning, and you you looked out the window because from our classroom window you could see the kindergarten uh, play area outside. It was a fenced-in area, and there was a big sandbox and you know other stuff. You looked out the window and you said, "Oh no, here come the kindergartners." You know, I said, "Why? What's the problem? It's their playground. It's their time." I said, and you told me that before school, you came down and planted bombs in their sandbox. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, huh, where'd you get the bombs? I mean, I don't remember the exact, you know, but yeah. I remember asking you just reality checks. Well, where'd you get the bombs? How did you get the bombs from, from where you live to this other end of town? Because uh, Jerome was in the other end of town. It's in North Frankfurt, uh, yeah. Yeah. And 
you know, and, and I remember you getting really frustrated with me <laughs> and just being like, oh, fine. All right. So I didn't. And, and to me, if you were truly psychotic or whatever they might, the other side might call it. Right. I wouldn't have been able, you would have, you would have, I, in my opinion, you would have just insisted if you were truly psychotic, you, there was nothing was going to stop you from believing that those bombs. You wouldn't have been able to deconstruct it that quickly. I don't believe so. I I don't see how. Yeah. Again, I'm not, I'm not an expert either, but it makes, yeah, seems like common sense. Okay, fine. And in hindsight, I might not have even shared that story, knowing how those things were misconstrued. And, you know, when, when you talk about some of these behaviors, like breaking the plate or doing things, I, your behaviors in school were more around just your own individual, like, fears, like, you didn't want to try new things, even just going out to recess, I, we're going to go out, and we're going to, we're going to play with the balls or whatever we would take out. I can't do that. It was a lot of, I can't, I can't, I can't. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that was on your chart at the end of the day, which I always found you very insightful. We would go through the things that you were working on, you know, Mm -hmm. um, were you, you know, did you, did you try and, and, and did you do your best or I, I don't remember specifically. And, and what, if that didn't work, what could you have done differently or what could you do tomorrow or if that happens or whatever? And um, I, I mean, I had some kids with behaviors, but I wouldn't put you in, you know, negative behaviors, disruptive behaviors. You, I don't ever remember you being disruptive except when, except in terms of just your needing more support where you might be crying or you might be fearful about something you would need extra encouragement. But I, I, I just didn't see that. Now I do remember when you came out of uh, your first hospitalization um, when your mom was concerned about sending you back to school and it had to do with self-harm. I had never seen any I had never had concerns about self-harm at school from anything that I observed. I never self-harmed in my life. And I don't know if I even knew about that broken dish um, situation. I I don't recall. It's a story. Yeah, I don't recall the memory, but um, she says that was one of when I started to become uh, verbal again. Um, You know, I would do shock value kind of stuff or just be, you know, and then that was... uh, kind of the most say explosive but the most lively I had been in like 18 months and it was like this shocking thing you know of course my sister a couple years older than me uh I don't based on what she told me of course I have no recollection of this at all but it was at the dining room table and uh, apparently the whole family was was there who knows I mean they were young too uh doubt they remember it but I'm sure it had to be incredibly jarring for my mom, but I didn't do anything. She, you know, she couldn't move for a moment. She said, you know, she says that she was kind of like frozen like a deer in headlights, like what in the world is going on here? And, uh, you know, I said to her, this us talking very recently actually about it. I said to her, you know, I know it's hard, almost impossible to like, approximate how much time you were like a deer in headlights but you know was it long enough for like you to 
realized after you took the glass out of my hand that I wasn't going to cut myself to, to paraphrase. I'm trying to paraphrase here. I don't remember. But essentially, she said, yeah, you know, when she looked back on it, I was like, kind of, I did it. And then I was holding it like, look, you know, everybody see. But that, you know, of course, she wasn't, you're not wanting to wait on whether or not, you know, a troubled five and a half year old is, who has just said they're going to cut their wrist is actually going to do it. But she's like, you know, I don't, I don't get the feeling that you actually would have, or, or even, you know, where did, where did I hear that terminology? Like, where did I even get that idea? That was kind of more of what was on her mind. Um, and then the, the other, I don't know if you remember this one, if this was at Jerome, I feel like we talked about it, but I had said that I was going to, to go to heaven or, um, someone in the family had just died, but that I knew how I was going to do it. I had an ax on the wall or something like that at the house, like in, the, in my dad's tool shed. And I think I brought that to Jerome Harris and I had no intention on killing my, myself. Like I, I just, <laughs> I freaked people out. I mean, talk about shock value stuff. I don't know if you recollect that or if that was someplace else. I don't, I don't recall that. No. Yeah. So, I mean, I had, clearly what I would describe as unbelievable impulse control looking back like and when I say that I'm, I'm actually referring more towards as I got you know eight nine ten eleven like those things I struggled with um that's kind of what all of that morphed into was more uh behavioral what people perceive to be behavioral stuff but um I don't know, that, that, that gets into high school and a, a whole, a whole other, a whole other time, but. Um... Well, you know, Sean, I even remember after I, I left teaching in 1990 to go be a vision therapist full time because I just, wow, which um, in terms of my, my finances and my retirement, it could be looked at as a big mistake, um, but it was very rewarding and it was something I needed to do it at the time because it, it just made, I just, I saw it with you. I saw it with my kids. I saw that it really can change kids' lives more so than what I could do in the classroom as a teacher. Cause I was, you know, um, addressing underlying causes, but, um, I totally forgot where I was going with that. I apologize that that's that's all right um i was just listening to you you know you were you were talking about your switch over to the vision therapy um in the subsequent years after after te after like you know finishing up in 1990 uh teaching at jerome harrison but i had forgotten that you that you did that you know i i think i look back and i really i mean i know oh. he's oh do you remember where you were going because if so, go ahead. Okay. I, I apologize. So no, it's okay. after I stopped being your teacher, I continued to stay in contact with you and your, 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 your family. Mm. And I remember coming out, picking you up and going to the little ice cream place in, in the Northford across from Stanley T there. I know exactly the place it was called. What's this food? Oh, okay. <laughs> but and, and we would go to a playground or, you know, your mom was comfortable letting me take you out in my car and go places. And I don't ever remember you being anything but a typical kid. Like it was just, 
don't have any memory of it being challenging or I had to be so careful or I had to choose my words or I had to use, like, I just picked up this friend and went out for, you know, like I would if you were my nephew or you're something and, and I, you treated I, me like a person, not like a perceived illness, you know, I, yeah. And like this, this bright, kind, caring, sensitive, kid who yeah you 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 seemed anxious and you 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 lacked confidence in some areas but you responded well to support at least that's what i saw so i guess you're you're not you're you're not the only one i'm i'm lucky to have had a few teachers like that um that didn't quite serve the same role but kind of kept that momentum going i would say um at foundation school um and then that that the there were two teachers in particular whose names just out of respect i won't mention but i'm sure they wouldn't mind cause high praise um they were just wonderful though uh and then came grove um and that really i had learned who knows what happened to my brain i i do remember one thing you know, and as my mom was letting me know later on, and this is why it's called unscripted, right? Because I go off on, on that. <laughs> that's part. That's part of the reason that podcasts is called. But I do remember her telling me that, uh, and I already forgot where I was going. Um, oh, there's just so much here. Oh, that's right. Um, about my psychiatrist, Doctor Wiles, um, who. Uh, who uh, testified, if you if you can even call it that, who spoke at my arbitration uh, on behalf of me, like getting um, behalf of my parents getting um, uh, compensated for the injury, and mm -hmm. he said, um, my mom said that at one point he became you know not hugely agitated but but frustrated because uh, whatever they were asking him he said you're not understanding it's a it's an injury of the brain it's injured his brain and he needs to we need to help him develop new pathways and 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 it's essentially going to be a journey but you know there was a, a lot more said after that but my mom said that what resonated with her is that you know they weren't or were either being purposely obtuse or we're just trying to glide over the fact that what he was trying to explain was that the vaccine injury that, that they were they were failing to really understand that um, wasn't just this catch-all term that I had brain damage that I had a brain injury and that that what we were I didn't even know they were there at the time they didn't tell me this till after but what 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 the, the restitution my parents were seeking were, was to get me services mm -hmm. that would be necessary. And uh, we lost that case um, because for a couple of reasons. Um, one, by the time that they went to the vaccine, let's just call it a vaccine court for lack of another term, it's called something else in the, in the legislation. It's an arbitration hearing, but by the time they did that, the judge or facilitator or whatever you want to call the person, she, you know, she said, 
there's a few factors and this was really hurtful to my mom um the first one was that um they felt that she waited too long to respond as a nurse um to taking me to the er and that yeah it was really crushing stuff um the other was that i had because of because of my mom and dad's good choices and um, their kind of quest to talk to anybody and everybody with knowledge that I was at a point where uh, I was turning the corner and didn't need some of the limited funds that they had. Now I can sort of, sort of agree with that. Um, I do think that instead it would have been nice if there would be some level of accountability and instead of you know north the town paying for my services you know maybe I, I don't know if it's the pharmaceutical company maybe that I could have gotten restitution and some of the services paid for by the creators of this vaccination um, that had the marisol in it which injured a lot of us but there's a lot more to it than that um, but yeah, I think a lot more than I think the thimerosal was the mercury was a big part, but the it was there that crosses the blood brain barrier. There were there was a whole things. slew of things. Yeah. So they they and if, you know there still are a whole oh slew. yeah absolutely absolutely if you if you look up before we we started uh, just for the the heck of it I um let's see here I uh, looked up I was just looking up DPT vaccine nineteen eighties injuries um, and. I tried to download it. I don't know if I can still find it on here, but there's a lot of uh, different injuries and articles and whatnot. Any, anyway, it's a, let's see if I got it. it. I came across a thesis written by a student. I don't know. I'll have to look for it and see if I can, um, I'll link it for people if people are interested, but it's a thesis by a Columbia student about um, back, about what, contributes to vaccine hesitancy um, in the po and I think it was written in response to that kind of wave of um, of injuries and, and whatnot and the, the 1980s seemed to change a lot uh, as far as what recourse you could get at the same time, they were adding all these new vaccines to the vaccine schedule. I mean, you could talk more about that just as an everyday parent than I can, but it seems like it went from a few like routine ones to now, if I were to look, and I could be completely wrong, so without, I'm just off the cuff here, I think all the different combinations went up a total oh, well over 30, if not more, for kids by the time they reach adolescence. I'm like, could be wrong. Uh, 72 doses. By okay. So I was lowballing it because um, I, but so I knew I, the number was high. If I may say, when you talk about in the late eighties, when they, when they removed the liability from the pharmaceutical companies, mm -hmm. it's no accident that that's when it went from, and, and I, I don't, it, the number went from a very low number of vaccines to an increasing number. Yeah. And and that was no accident. And that's when they they developed the, I think it's called BSIP, the Vaccine Compensation Injury Program. Yeah. So every every vaccine that a healthcare provider administers 
has a tax, like a fee attached to it. And that fee goes into a fund and that's the vaccine injury fund. So the, the vaccine manufacturers no longer had any, an incentive to ensure safety because right. they were free from liability. Everybody paid this little tax every time they got a vaccine. We had the fund. Then you had to go to VSIP and fight like hell yeah. to try to get compensated, which is there really compensation for um, a vaccine injury? There, and I forget the number. There's a certain amount that's awarded to people whose children die. That's automatic. Right. Award. You get X so amount of a formula that they use, of course, which is just heinous. Uh, it's just that there is one, but but and I I'm terrible at remembering numbers, um, and and I, I just don't have those in my I, I used um, to have all this. I'll, I'll look that stuff up, and if you have any stuff, but we'll include a lot of this in the description. Um, you know, we can. Uh, that's how we got to seventy-two doses. So that's that's what they give now. The only, it's the. It's the only, I don't know what word I want, a medication product. That's it's product, I guess is the word I want. That's liability free. Right. That that I was gonna I was gonna ask you, you know, I mean, um, I think in the intro I said it or at some point that at least as far as I know, and if I'm wrong, I mean anybody can cor correct me, but I can't think of any other drug or product that uh any one of these like Pfizer or Purdue or anyone put out that is exempt from liability. I don't know that Purdue makes vaccinations. I'm just saying like that I I'm not aware of that at all. It seems to be the standalone um, that is exempt. And it, to me, it I mean, is. That and that's why they call the COVID-19 a shot jab, whatever a vaccine. It's not a vaccine. It's gene therapy. Yeah. But by calling it a vaccine, they're it's, exempt from liability, or we wouldn't have all these dead and injured people from it because I, they would have. I, I, I will, this is just my prediction here. I really do think, uh, Linda, that, that, that they are going to add it to the schedule of required vaccinations for kids if they haven't already. I mean, I might be. Um, Absolutely. That's the reason they moved it down to age five, because by putting it at age five, they put it on the schedule. And then if you want to go to school, you want to do, you know, then, then you have to have it. It's, in my opinion, it's, it's criminal. But. Well, it is, uh, I mean, I'm very blunt about my, my opinion. It's criminal. And uh, I'm also very blunt. And sometimes this throws people where I, um, I, you know, and I could have an entire 10 hour podcast where I could uh, lay this out for people and prove it. Um, as best as I can, but to me, it's a, it's you want to call it a soft genocide, whatever that they are unleashing this thing. I mean, this maybe polio vaccine, maybe a small, a couple others, but I, in looking at the history, as far as a global effort with not one nation excluded from, I mean, they want everybody in the fold, whether or not certain nations have already. That I, I'm aware that that's a separate thing. That's. Uh, some nations haven't received any vaccination, but they're pressing that the the urgency of it in globally. There's not one community. There's not one sovereign nation, supposedly sovereign nation. There's no place on earth where you can go where this isn't gonna where this isn't uh, currently a, a debate, a huge debate and huge divide about like being forced to take this 
this medicine and not just um, take it, but potentially take three. Oops, no wait, no wait, four. Oops, oops, no wait. Now they're actually talking five. Um, so I really, you know, did I mention to you that ever that the journalist Daniel Horowitz, um, where, yeah, where, where he, you know, he, he, he was the first one I ever heard use the term. Um, and it was in response to, you know, early treatments and stuff being pulled, you know, not, or alternative treatments not being allowed. But he said, you know, I, I can think of for those reasons and more, no other thing to call it except for a genocide, a type of uh, genocide. And why that is, if that, you know, I, I don't know, but I feel like that they've been building to that, you know, um, for, for you know, a, a, long, a long time. And I really feel for the people who are being injured by this vaccine now, which is in record numbers in the VAERS, VAERS database, even by its own, and you know, you don't know, but I think you and I would both agree I'll speak for myself here. I feel that that number is probably grossly understated, um, but it still kind of dwarfs other, the reactions from others. And yet they're moving full steam ahead with, at, they will add it to the schedule with, and with pushing, um, you know, boosters and, and, and the like. I was actually surprised the other day and was wondering if you had heard about this, that the FDA, evidently, I'll have to double check because, you know, may have changed since then, but put the brakes on the emergency use, use authorization for, uh, for the vaccine for five and under. Evidently, they, they said no. Yeah, evidently, they said no, not yet. No, I haven't looked at the details of that. But again, I'm making notes here and I'll include all these things, links for people yeah, that they can follow. But, um, you know, and it, people can throw all kinds of terms out there, believe me, I've, I've in, in my time, like uh, especially since this pandemic, um, not so much now people have calmed down, but a lot of con uh, conspiracy nut, you know, you're the, you know, you, just because you had an experience, my favorite is on Twitter. Somebody said, you know, just because you had a bad experience, you know, doesn't mean that like we need to be talking about it uh, and be all alarmist. I'm like, well, that would, would be coming from someone who obviously has never had someone in their life that they love that had a bad experience. And how about the millions of, of, of people that, that have? I'm really fortunate. You know what I'm saying? Like, that those words would not be flying out of people's mouths if it happened to them you know what i'm saying and the, and it's Absolutely. it's to me it's a you know a much larger agenda you ever do you remember those magic eye posters from the 90s do you do you ever remember those you stare at them long enough and like yeah. i think we've talked yeah. about this yeah but to me it's like um as i research all of this kind of you know who, the pub, the the partnerships, um, like the okay. So for example, basically a, a big a different picture comes into view. There's a screenshot that I took a, of like a video that I watched on YouTube. I'll try to remember to include the link because um, I do a little. I like to follow 
relationships that companies and, and organizations and government have, right? So it was like the, the vaccine, it was a, a commercial and ad that, that involved kids talking about how heroic it was gonna be to get the vaccine and you know how good it is and this, that, and the other thing. And then I look at the, um, the little logo and it's a, like the vaccine awareness project and I did a little screen recording of myself, then following that, who they are and their funders. And lo and behold, the whole thing was funded by Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline. So it's like, so it, oh, it, 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 I'll find the, the picture, but it's something pediatrics, vax, it's, it's you framed as if, if the average person's looking at it, like this is a benign organization for public health. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? But when you then look at who are like the only donors or the primary donors, they're the ones making the product. Mm -hmm. So it's not an independent group of like pediatricians like coming together and being like, you know, uh, we understand your concerns, but um, it's, I mean, they're, they're involved in the, and they were involved in the ad, but what it, to me, if you have those funders, it's like, here, read this script. Uh, I just, the more you look into it, and I, I could make a video, a long video with like a hundred different examples, and the number 100 is not me being hyperbolic. That's actually the case. It's just, I get dizzy with it in my mind, trying to like put them all together of like how, how shockingly obvious it is that something's amiss that that um why you know why do what you know the, the big controversy uh, i don't know if you remember it was in late obama years over giving boys and girls the hpv vaccine oh. first first they wanted to give it to girls and then they were going to start forcing it on boys and actually um i'll say my my sister was very clear with her pediatrician then and now that like no I I I'm, that's one I'm not going to get particularly for her for her son but I don't think she did for either one of her kids um but it was a big deal here in Texas and it was a a, a big big deal and then it, right around the time that they were talking about forcing the swine flu vaccine that people have such short memories but that was going to be a thing and I remember going and talking to uh, my uh, local rep, state rep, Elliot Neistat, I got a meeting and I was like, I expressed my concerns. And he's like, you know, you really should be talking to Lloyd Doggett. And I was like, uh, I've tried to talk to Lloyd Doggett, who's the representative still is, I think here uh, in Austin in Congress. Um, but I can't ever get a hold of him. So it was, it was like, I, I feel like then and now, there's no recourse for for us to take. Uh, it's a it's a moving train that has been gaining momentum for a long long time, and now you've got two institutions that uh, people for a long time trusted, and now are realizing they really can't. I haven't trusted my entire life uh, for my own reasons, but that's the education institution and the healthcare institution. You know, um, told you you were brilliant. <laughs> I have, I, I, I've had, um, 
you know, at the end of one of my episodes the other day, I told a, a, a story about me being a wild and reckless college student, obviously after with the disclaimer, don't ever do this. But, you know, I start the little story with like, all right, here's a story, you know, just for a little levity. And um, thanks to all those who helped me come out of my shell and get well enough to do something so ridiculously reckless and stupid as a college student. But I, I've also, I have all of you guys and very smart people to thank for the fact that I am a functional adult and, and the fact that I can do something. What happened was I did something dumb and I learned from it and I didn't do it again, you know? Um, Don't we all? Thank yeah. You. Yeah, well, you would think. <laughs> more than one stupid thing in my life that I've learned from. <laughs> I, I think that not being so eloquent and trying to, um, I'm also trying to give up caffeine, by the way, so that's part of this. But I, uh, I feel like for a long time, what's been happening is that the the, the system has been gaining power and momentum and influence in people's lives. And that in the past couple of years, um, that's become, whereas people were maybe recognizing it, but not understanding the full gravity of the threat that the system poses them, people are really getting that now. You know what I mean? They're, they're getting that when they're told, um, you know, your, your child can get the vaccination at school with uh without needing your permission that's that's real in some states um it is horrifying there you know allison mcdowell could speak more to the the hipaa equivalent in the educational system and how that plays a lot into this but then in, in the in the medical system it's like people are being told that you know hey you can't come to my practice if you're not vaccinated my old pediatrician uh, pediatrics plus and I have no problem putting their name right out there I had correspondence with them this summer trying to get my vaccination records um, their policy on their website says we won't you know for the safety of all our yada yada we will not take it we, so they only see children and they're saying to you if you won't take this vaccine which like a huge portion of the population is concerned about even if they've already taken it particularly for their kids, we're not going to see you. And they're, they're excellent providers otherwise uh, in an area you know, where people are looking, gonna be look, looking for excellent providers uh, and they're not alone. Or, you know, so you're, you're trapped or you, know, you go to the hospital and you have a loved one that is uh, asking for ivermectin and the outside doctor concurs and hospitals literally will take you to court over it. it's insane and i think i think people are really starting to i hope look at that and and, and wonder you know i i have you know i i talk and can talk about where this road leads but um I don't know. And all all of your time, like you know, looking into this stuff or being aware of this stuff, have you seen kind of uh, an evolution of the intensity of it? Like, if that makes sense. Well, 
in my years as a teacher, you know, if you read, particularly because I, I spent a lot of years, um, I, most of my, my years were working with um, students on the autism spectrum and with uh, emotional behavioral issues. Uh, I've lost count of how many of them were vaccine injured who were identified as vaccine injured. And right. then there's a whole okay. group of people who haven't been identified. People think of a vaccine injury as neurological damage or, oh, my child is paralyzed from the HPV. That's common or you know, various things, but they don't realize that childhood cancers have also been linked to vaccine injuries autoimmune diseases, asthma, on and on and on and on and on. Um, I'm convinced my MS is linked to it, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. there's no doubt in my mind. Um, and the evidence is out there. And, and it, it's, it's, it's disturbing because if you look at the number of patents that the CDC holds, it's like, you know, the, what's it, the foxes watching the hen house kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's, and, and there are way, way, way many more vaccines in the pipeline that they want to push on us kids. Right. And then they have put the COVID vaccine aside, just the vaccines on the schedule. Um, kids in Connecticut and California and other states aren't allowed to go to school if they don't have all of the, um, the vaccines that the government says. I listened to testimony in Connecticut uh, Two years ago, I was at the Capitol when we had in-person hearings when Connecticut was trying to remove their religious exemption. And I heard many, many stories, but one that just really is still here in my heart. A dad said that his, his first child was um, given, and I don't remember, I, I wanna say it was the MMR, but I'm not positive, and, and the child died. And Later, they had another child and the pediatrician and the parents, everyone agreed, we're not going to vaccinate this child. It didn't go well last time. Right. And so the parents asked the doctor for a medical exemption when their child was ready to go to school. And the doctor said, Listen, look, they give us a really hard time if we do medical exemptions. We get looked into, we get, you know, we, we have a lot of pressure. Just do a religious exemption. It's easier. Mm -hmm. So that's what they did. Well, when they were removing, Connecticut said, we're going to take away the religious exemption. And they said to this father, you know, you need to get it. You just go get a medical exemption. And he said, I've tried and I can't. So his child, his children can never go to school unless he wants to take to risk their lives. I mean, which obviously they're not going to do. And, and I heard story after story after the child. I mean, these, are crimes, uh, these are crimes against humanity. That's really, that's, that's what it is. Go, and Sean, if you go back, even you mentioned earlier about, oh, maybe, maybe polio is okay. And I, I won't go into this, but if you were to do a deep dive, which I did many years ago when I wrote, I did a, an independent study for my master's. Um, and you dive really deep, uh, you will find that polio and what's the other one they say, oh, smallpox even, that they were, they had about taken care of themselves itself you know it was it was it was leaving us dr mcintosh talks about that yeah a yeah. lot in her yeah. powerpoint yeah so um you know i've looked at this for years and years because one vaccine injured kid is just too many mm -hmm. um and i i saw i had a neighbor um typical kid 
And again, I forget if it was the MMR or the DPT because there's just so many stories in my head. And this child became profoundly autistic. And um, parents have done a lot and he's come a long way, but he will never be the typical child that he was before he was injured. And it, it, it's heartbreaking. I mean, lots of, and, and the numbers in VAERS, even for, for those vaccines with, with the deaths and injuries, it's a fraction. It's, it's it really, it really is. And I think, uh, I, well, I don't, I, I think wonder, I, a lot of the times um, I get to thinking about, you know, cause some, uh, sometimes, you know, I don't have kids, but if you're a parent and you're going day to day and things are hectic, you, you might, there might be, you know, and in the community and our society, you know, all kinds of stuff cropping up that we just attribute to the like, oh, we, we, we've just discovered it now. We know more about ADHD or, you know, OCD or intermittent explosive disorder or, you know, um, you know, autism so that we can um, identify it more instead of, and I've, there's a myriad of other emotional and behavioral stuff, mental health issues uh, that it's like, are we just discovering it now or is there a noticeable uptick in behavior that is not that is not organic, not the way it should be, because of the fact that we're putting all of this stuff into this developing mind. The mind's like a computer, you know what I mean? You and you're loading it up with with all kinds of, I mean, just just reading the ingredients or trying to, you know, as a non-medical person of like some of the old school vaccines. I mean, and just the way that it's done. Even if you're just curious, uh, but not alarmed, I mean, I don't see how you couldn't be curious, like about how that impacts the body long term. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like how this uh, virus, attenuated virus that's harvested on, like, you know, a, a, an egg or um, beetle cells, beetle cell, uh, crazy stuff like that. It's like, how do we know longitudinally? Is that the right word? Like, like how how this impacts people are we just taking certain health issues mental health physical health later on in life and being like attributing that to something else when really it, its roots are in this you know vaccinations and i i think that that's very very possible you know um it's definitely the, the, in, in this documentary just about food i you've probably heard of it if not seen it forks over knives have you mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. Um, it's a good documentary and like, you know, you could pick apart both sides, but um, one thing that they highlight that, that, that is kind of course correlates with what I'm saying here is how a lot of problems that families will be like, well, that's genetic, you know, grand, grandpa and his grandpa had heart issues. And so, you know, but then they don't look at the way that they're eating that the family passes down. It's like, you know, certain eating habits and that that could maybe be the contributing factor in, in addition to genetic predispositions um, in a lot of cases, or maybe, you know, it's, an, a, it's just a force acting on its own. I, I don't know, but they, they make that, that, it's more of a question that they're asking out loud. Like, you know, have, what do we lose by, by considering that possibility? You know, you lose nothing by trying to break the chain and, and, and whatnot. And I do wonder that about vaccines. I, I don't know. It's just my thoughts. 
I'm a perfect example of that. My father and his four other siblings, his four siblings all had diabetes. I had gestational diabetes with two of my pregnancies. My doctor said, you'll be diabetic by the time you're 40. Wow. I said, no, thank you. <laughs> and I started to really pay close attention to my diet. Yeah. And I changed it. I mean, it wasn't a terribly unhealthy diet, but it, it could use improvement. And I, I eliminated the things that contribute to diabetes. And I am 69 years old and I do not have diabetes. Wow. So um, I think if I had made different choices, I very likely uh, would be. Um, but yeah, there's when I also thinking back to something you said a couple of minutes ago, Sean, is that in 1987, when I started teaching and I told you I had my first, um, student with autism, mm -hmm. and I didn't have a clue. I didn't, I had heard the term and went back in my textbooks and I found a paragraph and that's it. about autism because it was rare. It was so rare at that time. And then, but again, I mean, that's right at the time when the law changed and liability was removed and the vaccine schedule increased dramatically. Now there are entire courses. You can get a degree in autism spectrum disorders. It's, it's, it's now what, one in 40 or one in 30. I, I, I can't keep Numbers track. astounding. I think uh, I would, I, I look it up to put it in the comment but yeah it's insane it, it is insane and, and i'm not saying vaccines are the entire cause of it but if you look at if you put side by side if you put the symptoms of autism next to the symptoms of mercury toxicity they're almost identical you could almost overlap them and and see um yes our food is you know we've got um genetically modified food, we've got pesticides, we've got glyphosates and everything, we've got, you know, a lot of toxins in our air and our water and our food that I think are contributing. Absolutely. Um, if you, if you really, really look at and, and try to make sense of even and I know, I'm kind of getting off here, but I'll no, say okay. one, one last thing. Um, the thing that really blows my mind is the HPV, not the HPV, the um, HEP B vaccine. Hep B, my understanding is that you get it from using dirty needles mm -hmm. to shoot up and having unprotected sex. Is this Hep B or Hep C? Hep B. Okay, I don't know much about hepatitis B. Hep B is given to babies before they leave the hospital. Babies are typically discharged day one now, sometimes day two. And the story that my understanding of how it got to the babies was it was developed because it was thought it would be it would be really uh, desirable for people with AIDS because I guess AIDS and, and hepatitis had some overlap of some kind. Right? And the, 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 that group that they were targeting that they really thought were going to want this vaccine weren't interested. So they spent all this money. They invested a lot of money in developing this vaccine. Now, what are we going to do with it? Our targeted audience doesn't want it. Well, let's give it to the babies. Now, why would parents? Oh, yeah, can't hear you for some reason. 
You went out on me. I can't hear you. Can you hear me? Doesn't make sense oh. to me. Uh, I, yeah, you 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 went out for a minute. So um, did you want to backtrack real quick? But like it was just a few seconds. Um, whatever. Let me see where I was. Um, I, I have no idea. Where That's we're right. Going. We were talking about autism and the liability, and then um, uh, at, you kind oh, of. Oh, the hep B about. Yeah, you were uh, explaining hepatitis B. Yeah, sorry. So the hepatitis. B vaccine was developed for a target audience of people with AIDS right. and HIV, and they weren't interested. So they had invested all this money and they had nobody to give it to. So they put it on, they started giving it to one day old babies. Now think about it. You're a parent and you have a baby, you have a five pound baby, I have a nine pound baby. They're both going to get the same injection. They're going to get it on the first day of their life. They, they have no risk of getting hep B unless they're going right. to go to dinner and shoot up and have sex tomorrow. And I don't think that happens. Uh, it's uh, That would be a remarkable thing, uh, certainly for a one day old baby. I'd certainly say uh, th that that child was exceeding their developmental milestones if they were doing those things at one day old. Uh, so, so that's how they started offloading the vaccine. I mean, and just that's how that the fact got that that was successful is unbelievable to me. I mean, parents were just saying yes. That I mean, that, that goes to show you. I mean, as we wrap up here, that we're we're you know, I'm 40 years old. It it seems to me, and I I don't know if it's always been quite this severe, but we are a society that like um, our arguments are made off of you know. Uh, ethos or pathos, but no logos, you know what I mean? So it's like, oh, this person, you know, Fauci, he's got credibility because he's, you know, a doctor and he works for this institution. Um, and then they oftentimes, you know, roll in the pathos, the emotional stuff right with it uh, mm -hmm. to kind of play on your fears. But there's, there's it, when you pull it apart, there's pretty much no logic to it. But, but yet we're a society that, um, at least the media establishment. I mean, it's just relies on these experts. It's like the, my, my, I, I would have to say the number one term that I have grown to hate so much that when I see people tweet it, like I literally challenge them on it. I'm like, you know, tell me the scientific method when they say, follow the science. Well, I just follow the science. I'm like, well, that's fantastic. Tell me what that means. Can you spell science? Probably not, you know, honestly. And if you can't remember your basic scientific method, if you don't understand the value of asking, you know, who, what, when, where, why, how, like you have no business even saying follow the science, stop saying follow the science, because that's, it, I, I feel like, and I get people want to line up behind some, somebody and believe and trust. Uh, of course, I want those things. I, I don't, I, I don't love the fact that some of these realities are realities, but we are a nation that um, had been and has been, and I'm hoping that's beginning to fracture a little bit now, that leans so heavily on like, you know, our experts, even if it's, and oftentimes like, as it's being detrimental to our own well-being, you know, I mean, I've seen that just explode you know, over the last, you know, since I graduated college, and maybe that's just part of 
becoming an adult and being more aware of stuff. But I don't know if it was always like that. Maybe. I, I see a lessening of critical thinking and more oh, yeah. of just accepting that which is thrown at you. I, I don't get it because I've always questioned everything. <laughs> it's oh. just who I am. I, that's, that's... And I edit myself. I look it up myself. And especially if it doesn't make any sense to me, then I have to go deeper. Right. But that's not true of everybody. And I understand that. And I understand that everybody has the time to do that. But when you're talking about putting a substance into your body, an and, and experimental substance in the case of, of the most recent jab, but even all of those on the schedule, I mean, to look at it, like the HPV, um, why would you give your nine-year-old boy the HPV vaccine? Um, For no other reason other than you were told, yeah, than you were told that it was necessary, I, I suppose. And he's um, not sexually active. And right. nobody, nothing's going into his cervix because he doesn't have one. Exactly. Um, and I know they talked about other things, but if people would stop and say, well, wait a minute, you know? Well, and um, just connect to the dots and question some things. It's like, and again, it, it can be hard. It's also scary to do. It's like, you know, the system to me, as, as we kind of roll, roll to the conclusion here, that it seems to me that in reinvestigating like my life, like just coming to terms with other things that are bigger than this, that I've, I've discussed somewhat openly in other podcasts, but it's a, a mechanism of control as far as I'm, I'm concerned. And I feel like they are right, right in front of us, kind of remodifying the, the human being and the, the injuries and the deaths are collateral damage on the side. But what they hope to have is like a, a genetically modified human being. I could be totally off, but just all the different partners that these people have, like CRISPR is partnered up with, you know, they're the ones genetically modified humans. They work on that stuff. They have relationships with the vaccination companies. And I'm not saying that that's any one vaccine or even that that's true, but something is, is up that is um, nefarious. Absolutely. And I, for the life of me, some of the smartest people that I know people far smarter than myself, I won't, won't look at it. I won't even ask the question, is it like, are we sure that the system is not creating these new problems that then it comes in with, with the cure? Because to me, I mean, like there's, like there's subtle and then there's like a barking cat, you know what I mean? Like it's so effing obvious that something is wrong here. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to speak above my expertise and say what it is, but it's like, we're a very sick society in so many different ways. We're so ill. And um, it, I, it, I'm waiting for that moment, uh, that pivotal moment that I really do believe will happen where people recognize that and recognize that um, the edifice of power above us, the officialdom is the abuser. Uh, and then, you know, the how, the why is irrelevant. It's just like time to make the abuse stop. 
you know, time to time to make the abuse stop. And um, a lot of me trying to reconstruct my my journey, which certainly, again, I'm really blessed, lucky, fortunate, because so many people have it so much worse. But uh, uh, me reconstructing this is important because I don't know how well I, I get so when you look at the facts, it's, it can be so upsetting and infuriating. Um, and for me, I, I take it so wildly personally, unbelievably personally, not just because of the injury, but because of um, what it put my family through and because of what happened to me at, at the, you know, the, they'll say just the abuse that took place, you know what I mean? Like, that's my story and it shaped my life. And then I kept having to come back to the system for help for this thing that it did to me right mm -hmm. and really the pivotal moment came when we went to this private place that the system really left alone called the grove school and i was able to really uh come come out of my come into my own and really kind of finish doing some important work but then i was left with this ms which people are my mom even, she's like, they're not necessarily related. I'm like, yeah, that's true. I can't prove that. But I just find it implausible that the two wouldn't be. Um, now, I could be completely wrong. I suppose it really doesn't matter either way. It is what it is. And I can do all kinds of things to help myself um, and try to make my quality of life better. But uh I really will conclude with this and then see if you have anything else you want to add. Uh, I was asked ironically by somebody, and I won't say who, um, if I was, uh, they're experimenting, I guess, with a MS vaccine, if I would be willing to take the MS vaccine, you know, like, and they were saying it with excitement, I think for me, not really getting that. And I just, I couldn't have responded quicker with nope. But in my mind was like, I had so much to say about that. I'm like, I just wanted to be like, are you? And then I pulled myself back and I just didn't say anything because I realized that the person was trying to be um, yeah, like, oh, look, this cool new innovation, like there's hope. You know, I, I recognize that I do. But uh, anyway, sorry to ramble. Did you have anything else you, you wanted to add? I will just say that given your journey, um, I am just amazed at how far you've come and how well you have done. And I'm sure it hasn't been easy and, and either myself or anyone watching could ever possibly know the extent of the struggles that you and your family have gone through. But I am, I don't know if I have a right to be, but I'm immensely proud of you. <laughs> you have every right to be as your Thank former you. teacher. Um, I am just so grateful for that, that you found me on LinkedIn and that we were able to reconnect uh, because it's answered a lot of questions I've had for a lot of years about how you were doing and your family. And um, I hope that you'll continue to do this work, um, not just for your own personal healing, but I think that you're also helping a lot of other people um, as you talk openly about about these challenges it's, these challenges and not easy 
<laughs> but it is worth it. And um, you have every right to be proud. You, you know, the fact that I talk about the puzzle pieces um, and reconstructing my past. I mean, you stand out in my mind clearly. And I looked you up even, I think, before the pandemic even began. I think I sent you a message on LinkedIn. Um, you could be wrong about yeah. that. But, um, you know, for a reason, because you, you know, you impacted my life so profoundly. Uh, and, you know, maybe it's a little too personal, but I, I would say that your, your family is immensely blessed to have you as a mother, as a grandmother, um, just as an advocate, you're brave. Um, doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, we all, it would behoove those of us of our ilk that, that, that like, that won't comply uh, with some of this ridiculousness that there's a difference between being, you know, you could be scared and that's still, you can still be brave. You know what I mean? Like uh, a lot of times I am scared going into job interviews, like in making, you know, making my stance clear, I'm scared, you know, you know what I mean? But I do it anyway. Um, you're, you're a courageous person. My guess is that you were even as a brand new teacher, you know, I know you were like, a, just trying not to step outside of my box and went up, but I have no doubt. I know for a fact, actually, we'll just say that in addition to your advocacy, you, you your ability to see me, which is probably why I, I was so well behaved and under like control when, you know, I was in your care. Um, and then relay those observations and, and everything else to my mom. Um, it just, there, it's of so much importance. I, I can't imagine that I would be where I am had you not been in my life. I, I, I'm so certain of that. So I wanna thank you for that from the bottom of my heart as we close. You're welcome. I'm grateful to have had the opportunity. All right, Linda. Well, thank you for joining. And uh, we will certainly on a personal level be in touch very soon. Sounds good. Thank you, right. Scott. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay.